Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. So excited to remind you that hope is not something we simply long for. Hope is something we practice. Hope is something we we live out. This becomes the developing story of the first century church, even in the midst of persecution. And this should be our story. Even when suffering and trials come, our hope should not simply be observed, but lived out. I'm so amazed at looking into verses inside the scriptures, uh, such as First Peter, which reminds us of how the first century church not only endured, but overcame, even against some of the most unthinkable and unimaginable persecutions and sufferings of the people of the first century lived with such purpose. And so we're reminded that our purpose can really become evident even in the midst of suffering. So I want to welcome you into this time of, of leaning into God's word. We're in First Peter chapter 1, and we begin at verse 13 by looking at some clear facts that direct us toward living out our hope. Oh, I tell you, the world is hungry to see people who are truly living out hope. And I think you and I would have to admit, we truly desire not a hope that is referencing an ideology or a hope that we only think about, but oh, we, we ourselves hunger for a hope that is real, a, a hope that is, is a, a hope surviving against all odds that life may bring. I'm reminded of, of a very sad part of our nation's history from April 19th, 1995. You may recall that that was the Oklahoma City bombing. And although we're almost at the 25-year mark since that domestic terrorist attack, our hearts are still with those who lost family members in that tragedy. But under the details, I've discovered a story that I think you'll enjoy this morning. Right outside of the building that was bombed, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, there was an American elm, this tree that, that sit there. And after the bombing, the tree was covered in, in rubble. But many were surprised that immediately after that, the tree was not lost. The tree began to bloom. And what I find amazing is that even today, this tree is known as the survivor tree because it became an object of hope from that devastating moment that rocked the core of Oklahoma City uh, to even last year when a, a group of state officials and civil leaders came together and by science and technology, that tree was cloned and transplanted so that this object of hope could live on forever. Uh, what an amazing story that again reminds us we hunger not simply for a hope that is talked about. We hunger for a hope that, that is alive and a hope that, that, that lives on. And so I'd like to ask you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 1 so that we can discover how our hope is active, not dormant, not simply an object, but uh, truly active. Uh, to do this, I'd like to focus on the entirety of chapter 1 for just a moment. In verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, we're told that hope is uh, is a noun. It's, it's, it's what we are given. We are given a living hope. But in verse 13, hope is expressed as a verb because we read in verse 13, set your hope. So in this one chapter, hope is seen uh, as a noun, an object, something that we actually receive as a part of our lives if our faith is in Christ. But hope is also 
action and activity, something that we do and respond with in our lives. Uh, When we were looking at hope as a noun, we discovered seven facts that helps us to fully understand and know hope. But now, uh, beyond simply knowing about hope, we can put that hope into action as we respond to hope uh, with our lives. So I'd like to share with you from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, three imperatives that will help us to truly live out our hope so that we can indeed be people with a real sense of purpose. Yes, purpose can, can be understood and revealed even in suffering. And the way that you and I find our purpose, even in the midst of suffering and challenges, much like the recipients of this letter we're studying, is to see that our hope is active. Our hope is alive and, and we are actively living out the hope we have in Christ. Uh, Looking at these uh, facts of hope that we've already discovered in chapter 1, we can see those as uh, indicative. Uh, The Greek language has an indicative, meaning facts that are indicative of a person's identity. So hope is certainly indicative of someone who says, hey, I trust in Jesus. But like like any portion of the scriptures, following the, the indicative, there's always the imperative. Uh, meaning, what do we do in response to the facts that we have? We know hope. We know hope is sure. We know hope is living. We know that Christian hope uh, points us toward our spiritual inheritance. We know that Christian hope guards our faith and produces joy and reminds us of the promises of God. All these are the facts of Christian hope. So now that we know these facts, what are the imperatives? How do we live out? such a hope so that we indeed can be people of purpose. Well, I'd like to give you three of of these imperatives that we find in the second half of chapter 1. These imperatives are set your hope. That's from verse 13. The second imperative is be holy. Uh, This is from verse 15. And then the third imperative, the third action for a hope that's living is in verse 22, love one another. So how do we become people of purpose, even in the midst of suffering, much like the recipients of this letter? We set our hope, we strive for holiness, and we love one another. This is pretty simple. So let's look at each of these for just a moment. First, how do we truly become people of purpose in suffering? How do we live out our hope? We set our hope. Again, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Set your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. Focus on that phrase, set your hope. Another translation would render, fix your hope. The tense of this verb is such that the action is represented as beginning action. Uh, There are other types of actions in the Greek language. There's action that is ongoing. There is action that is completed. But here the tense is so unique that the action actually demonstrates a beginning action. It's as if Peter, that former disciple and apostle, writes clearly, prepare yourselves, prepare in the midst of suffering to set your hope, fix your hope on what is stable and secure. So where do we place our hope? Well, the answer is here in verse 13, on the grace of Jesus Christ. But notice the the reference when Jesus Christ is revealed. This seems to be somewhat of a future prospective hope. But notice that in the phrase, uh, 
set your hope, fix your hope, firmly establish it on the grace to be revealed, actually references the complete work of God that he's presently doing in our lives. This is the meaning of the phrase, fix your hope on the grace to be revealed. If your faith is in Christ, God is presently at work in your life, making you to be that, that person, that parent, that worker, that, that friend, that, that person that truly has the presence of God alive in them, changing them from the inside out. This becomes the work of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, the scripture says, fix your hope on the grace to be revealed, meaning we know that one day all the work that God's desiring to do in our life will be completed. I love the promise in Philippians 1 verse 6, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, perfection. He will finish this work in you, the promise states. But for you and for me, we, we look toward that finished work as a present encouragement. To better help you understand that our hope is fixed on the finished work of Christ and on his grace when he is revealed, I have to read to you a verse from Ephesians chapter 2 that I think you'll find very encouraging. In verses 6 and 7, these words describe the very work that God is doing in the life of someone who has placed their faith in Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavens so that he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is not referencing when we are literally in heaven with Christ. This is referencing that at this moment, the finished work promises that one day we'll be seated with Christ. But at this moment, it's as if already we're seated with him and he is demonstrating through our lives the, the immeasurable riches of his grace. God's doing something amazing in you spiritually. And that becomes the place upon which our hope is fixed. So as a parent, when your children challenge you, you can give in to the despair or you can say, God, I know you've completed my work already because you are timeless. And so I take that promise and it becomes my confidence now. And I no longer become a person of despair, but I hope and trust in you that you are doing a good work, even in the midst of these challenges. You could say that not only as a parent, you could say that as a spouse, as a, as an employer, as an employee. Whatever defines you references the reality that God is doing something incredible in you. He's already promised that it will be completed. Therein is where you fix your hope on the work of God in your life, immeasurably demonstrating his grace in you as he continues to renew you and to make you the person that will one day be that beautiful and complete picture of his saving grace. What a promise. What a place where we fix our hope. Now, here's the question. How do we remain with our hope fixed there? Well, verse 13 tells us that there are two ways. There are actually two truths on how our hope can truly stay fixed at that point. First, set your minds, prepare your minds, and secondly, be self-disciplined. To prepare the mind almost sounds like a, a, a Semitic idiom, meaning a Jewish imagery of one who girds up their, their clothes to, to run quickly. Well, that would be the intent here. 
Peter saw that image many times. In fact, he practiced that imagery where the, the apparel would be long and flowing, but to run and to move without entanglement, the, the clothing would have to be girded up and tucked in a belt around the waist. Well, that imagery is referenced here in the phrase, prepare your minds, gird up your minds, meaning do not allow your minds to become distracted with, with false ways of thinking or with with lies that the enemy brings against you or even with facts that are going on in the world that seem overwhelming but are so small compared to the promises of God. And so we we fix our hope on what God is doing in our lives by by this one resolve we prepare our minds. We we say to our minds, we gird them up and we, we resolve that we will not allow anything false to, to trip us up. We practice what the Apostle Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Take every thought captive in obedience to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so how do we keep our hope fixed? We, we resolve, we prepare our minds. The, the, the word there for prepare is, is in a tense that means make a resolve. So the resolve is we prepare our minds, we guard our minds from, from falling into lies that can discourage us and from facts that can challenge our faith. But with that resolve comes the result, and the result is here, to be self-disciplined or to be sober-minded, meaning that when our, when our thoughts are on the truth in the hope that we have in what God is doing, then our thoughts no longer lead us to behavior that, that stands against what God is doing in our lives. And so we prepare our minds, and then we live self-disciplined. We live sober-minded. We do not allow our lives to follow the lies that can come against us that would cause behavior that's not honoring to the Lord. False ways of thinking always lead to reckless behavior. I like to say it this way. Careless thoughts always result in reckless activity. And here we fix our hope. We set our hope on what God is doing in our lives, on the grace to be revealed. And we do that by guarding our minds against any lies that come against us. And from that, the result is living self-discipline, not giving in to behaviors and thoughts and reactions that would counter the work that God desires to do within us. So the first command after understanding hope is to live out that hope by setting our hope on the grace of Christ. Uh, There's a second command, a second imperative, a second way that we can live out our hope. And this is found in verse 15. But be holy in all your conduct. Well, we need to read that in the context of verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but instead, as the one who called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. What is the connection between hope and holiness? Why would the writer here, why would God's word remind us to fix our hope and then quickly in a second response to to pursue holiness? I think to answer that question, we can look at a couple of verses that are so important for you and for me. The first would be in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We read this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God references his full nature and his full essence. And the Bible tells us that our hope is in his glory in the full revelation of of who he is. Our hope is gained 
by the very nature of God. We look at God and, and then because of who God is, our desire for hope presses us toward God so that we actually now desire a pattern of life that is after God's nature and not after our own way of living in this world. And so I love the connection between our hope and a desire to pursue holiness. Our hope aligns us with God's pattern. And then we press ourselves in to say, God, I, I want my life to, to reconcile with you. I, I seek your way and I, I desire that your perfect will be done in my life. In fact, scripture even tells us in 2 Peter, and I love this verse, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them we may share in his divine nature. God invites us to press in and to pursue him. God, God calls us. God exhorts us through his word to pursue him and to pursue holiness. The word holiness actually means to be set apart. And so our second act, second to setting our hope, is this pursuit of holiness. I like to term it this way. From, from setting our hope, we now come to setting ourselves apart. This is the second imperative, the second command of truly desiring that our hope be lived out. We align ourselves with who God is and, and with his truth. In fact, Look more closely to verse 15, all the way down to verse 21. We see such an emphasis upon living life set apart. In fact, I'd like to share with you uh, from this pattern of behavior for holiness, I'd like to share with you four applications of this. The first application is very personal. We call it simply the, the personal application of this pattern of holiness to which we've been called. Our desire for hope, our desire to be active in our hope aligns us with God, presses us toward God so that we are pursuing him. We, we rejoice in the hope of his glory and who he is in his fullness. Therefore, we respond to his holiness. We respond to his nature first by a personal application. Verse 15 tells us to be holy, uh, even as he is holy. Uh, the, the term holy, hagios, comes from a word that can literally mean to be different. When you, when you call a building holy, and in the days of Peter and the other apostles, uh, uh, the readers uh, understood the temple was holy. Even in the days of Jesus and in the Old Testament, the temple was holy. The, the tabernacle was holy. The synagogues were holy because they were set apart. They were not like other buildings. They were different. The call to holiness is a recognition that God is calling us, according to verse 14, from a life that we once had conformed to the world to be completely different. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 tells us that we indeed are temples of the living God. God calls us to holiness, so we are different from the world. This is a personal application. God is calling me to be different from the life that I had before I placed my faith in Jesus, to be different from the world. And so this pattern of holiness is a personal application. I must strive to be, to be holy as my heavenly father is holy because herein I'm able to more 
to more uh, adequately and, and, and urgently grasp the hope that is in him as I press myself toward him and to desire to walk in, in, in uh, agreement with him. And this becomes the personal application. Uh, secondly, there is a familial application. I love that verse 14 references us once as, as children, as obedient children, but then in verse 17 reminds us that we answer not just to one who judges us, but we, we answer the one who is our father who judges us. So there is an endearing accountability referenced in this familial application, meaning our spiritual family. God is our father. And this pattern of holiness to which we now live because our desire is to live fully in the hope of God, this pattern of holiness references our relationship with God as our Abba Father. He is our Heavenly Father. We desire to honor and to please Him. So a, a call to holiness is not a, a call to, to legalistic uh, uh, actions or tendencies, but a call to honor our Abba Father who gave all for us. Third, there is what I like to call an eternal application from the personal and the familial to the eternal. Look at verse 18. You were redeemed. You were purchased, not with perishable things like you could have inherited from your earthly fathers like silver and gold, but you were purchased. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. That is an eternal status. So this pattern of holiness is applied to our lives with an eternal application. We are, we are drawn in through our faith in Christ and through salvation as children of God. And so our desire again from that uh, free gift of salvation is to honor the one who has redeemed us. We've been eternally redeemed. That's our status. And so we, we pursue with a, a heart of obedience the one who redeemed us. And then finally, I like to say there is a, a theological application from the, from the personal to the familial to the eternal to the theological. Verses 19 through 21, oh, gives us some great truths about a life of one who's placed their faith in Christ. Uh, we've been purchased, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. Verse 20, he was destined before the foundation of the world and was revealed in the end times to be the one, verse 21, who is the object of our faith and our hope. Do you hear the rich theology here? The blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus died on the cross. That was a necessary death so that we could be redeemed. Oh, look at this, this second theological point from verse 20. From the foundation of the world, it was revealed that Christ would die. Of the, the very beginning of the teachings of the early church, referenced in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, references that God preordained before the beginning of time that Christ would come and would die for our sins. Oh, there are such rich and meaningful doctrinal truths and theology that, that validate that, that we are called to this pattern of holiness as a response to desiring a life that is lived in the hope that is in Christ. And so... What are the commands? What are the imperatives that come from the fact of hope? Yes, we are, we are setting our hope. We're fixing our hope on the grace of Christ. And then secondly, we are considering ourselves set apart. We're setting ourselves apart unto the Lord because, oh, when we strive to be closer to our Heavenly Father, more of His hope has us and consumes us. But if you're not pursuing God, then it's quite possible that you're on a dangerous drift away from him. Don't get caught in that dangerous drift away from our God. Pursue him. 
The point is, as we pursue him in his holiness, we know more of his hope that fills and changes our lives. Then there's a final command, a final imperative that we discover in verse 22. By obedience to the truth, having purified ourselves, meaning simply that we've accepted by faith what Christ offered on the cross, we have sincere love for the brethren, and in that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Third, our third calling is simply this, to sincerely love. We set our hope, we set ourselves apart, and then we sincerely love. It's amazing that verses 22 through 25 describe from where this love comes. This love comes from the fact that we have been changed by the truth. Do you see that in verse 22 and 23? By obedience to the truth, this sincere love comes from a pure heart. Verse 23, since we've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. And then those powerful words from Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8 are are quoted. The word of God endures forever. And so Peter is raised up to remind his readers, to remind those first century Christians under persecution that although they have in mind to set their hope on the grace of Christ and to set themselves apart unto holiness as obedience to God, they must also sincerely love. And this love is born from obedience to the truths of God's word, from the gospel itself, as we hear the truth of the gospel and we respond by faith. And then we become made brand new, which is why the Bible is referenced here as bringing about an imperishable seed. The perishable seed is referencing the seed of progeny, the seed of, of procreation, the seed of birth that is physical. And we all are, are mortal in that birth. But the imperishable seed references the new life that will never die, that is born only through grace from Christ as we trust what he did on the cross. That becomes the seedbed for this love that should exist because the final imperative, the final command in chapter 1 is this, love one another sincerely. I give you these conclusions to this love. Our sincere love for one another is a direct result of the changed heart that Christ has brought through the word of God. Second, this type of love is is unfeigned, unhypocritical, from a pure heart. Did you hear these words? Sincerely love one another from a pure heart. The word pure means a heart that is not mixed, a heart that doesn't waver. Oh, when, when our hearts are truly pressing toward God and desiring that holiness, a direct result will be that we sincerely love. A third conclusion is this love is necessary for it is birthed into a a very hostile climate. Yes, in this day when Peter was first giving these words, all the community, the, the environment was very hostile. There was great persecution. And even today, uh, a community of love will produce and necessarily preserve a community of hope. Yes, love becomes that incredible, an incredible gift that God places in the hearts of believers that allows us to depend upon one another, to rely upon one another so that we are truly standing in hope. I'll tell you, in a moment of persecution, in a moment of challenge, 
our, our greatest foundation is that the love of Christ is alive in each of us, encouraging one another, spurring one another along, lifting one another above the, the vicissitudes and the, the, the many attacks that can come against our faith. And, oh, we desperately need to sincerely love. So how do we become people of purpose uh, amid sufferings and trials and persecutions? We set our hope on the grace of Christ. We set ourselves apart unto the holiness of God. And we sincerely love one another. The great and famous uh, businessman, Lee Iacocca, once asked the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, what makes a great team? Now, wouldn't you love to have been a part of that conversation, these two great minds coming together? And Lombardi responded this way to Iacocca's question, what makes a great team? And this is what this great, uh, famous coach said. Well, there are two things. There's discipline, and then there's a knowledge of the fundamentals. But a lot of teams have those and still do very poorly on the field because there is a third ingredient, Lombardi says. You've got to love one another. Isn't that amazing? This is a football coach describing how his team did so well. They cared for each other, he said. They loved one another. And then he said, the difference between mediocrity and greatness is how you feel about the people around you. Oh, listen, church, we are called to love like never before. So today, how do you find purpose in suffering? How do you find purpose in persecution and trials? Well, you do so by knowing that hope is not just a fact and hope is not an object to which we look, hope is active. And our hope can be very active. We can become people of purpose as we set our hope on Christ and on his grace. And as we consider ourselves set apart to God, and then as we sincerely love. I pray that these words have been encouraging to you today. I pray that you'll understand the way that we live proven is by allowing the hope that is in Christ to be active in our lives. Set your hope on Christ, not on the things of this world. See yourself set apart. Desire to be, to be holy as God is holy. We'll never achieve that in this life, but we, we pursue God. And we desire our lives to agree with him, for in that we find great hope. And then sincerely love. Love those around you. Encourage one another. Oh, this is the way to truly live proven and solid in a shifting world by being people of purpose. I pray that these truths have helped you to find purpose even in the midst of difficult times. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us your word. Thank you, Father God, for showing us that hope is alive and real. And, and we do not simply need to look at hope, but we, we need to be like that elm tree. We need to be alive, pointing people to real hope, which is in you. So, Father God, may we not just simply desire to be hopeful, but may we truly have real hope that is alive in us as we set our hope on Christ, as we set ourselves apart to holiness, and as we sincerely love one another. Thank you for these truths. Thank you that in them we can certainly be people that are proven in this very shifting world. Thank you for speaking to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. 
Thanks for joining us today. If God has touched you in a very special way, if, if you feel like that you need to reach out to someone and talk about what it means to, to follow Christ or to, to place your faith in Christ, there is a phone number, a texting number, and a website address on the screen right now. We encourage you to re reach out, and we'll be ready to respond at this very moment to encourage you in your faith. Hey, love you a lot, church family. Exciting things are happening. Looking forward to what God is doing both now and in the future. Let's stay tuned. Let's stay together. And let's trust God. He is on the move doing some amazing things. Let's live out the hope we have in Christ. God bless.